From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Live from London, you're with Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk TNT. You are indeed with Sonia Poulton. I'm going to wrap my arms around you like a comfort blanket because this is Friday show. We're here. We arrived. We survived. Wonderful, as always, to have you with us. How are you doing in the chat this morning? Good morning, Peter and Lord and Chris and Zoe and the whole crew in the house. Wonderful, wonderful to see you. Well, I see that breathtaking, the new ITV drama is kicking up something of a storm and a stink in the UK. It's been on all this week. ITV, the same people who brought you the docudrama about the post office. And uh, well, as I say, you know, it's been very interesting. Thank you, Zoe. I appreciate that. It's a fictional account of the memoirs of Dr. Rachel Clark, also known as Dr. Oxford on social media in reference to the part of England where she works as a palliative care doctor. Yes, that's right. She's the doctor that patients see at the end of their lives. And I, for one, have had a few problems with that during COVID. Breathtaking is written with a man who also wrote Line of Duty on TV. So you can imagine lots of dramatic lows and highs. And I'm going to walk you through Breathtaking uh, simply because I watched it so you don't have to, right? It states that it's based on the real life experiences of NHS hospital staff, but I can tell you it's not the same NHS hospital staff that I talked to throughout COVID or indeed any of the filmed observations I made when I went into empty hospitals. The disclaimer is the hospital and characters have been created for dramatic purposes and they sure have. Unfortunately, we all know that people now take drama documentaries for real and this is unquestionably a massive slice of propaganda. Oh yes, it is. Straight from the intro, we are introduced to the theatrics and performance of COVID-19 as Abby Henderson, who plays the Dr. Rachel Clark character, is wrestling with a full-on industrial face shield and mask, only to take it off to reveal red, raw marks on her cheek. Immediately, we are subjected to a chaotic hospital ward. A man is shoved in a side room cupboard on a stretcher and barely able to breathe. Then they say things like, it's happening, might be the first one, flew in from China. The drama is interspersed with real life footage of politicians such as the then health secretary, Matt Hancock, walking into number 10. And we hear the approved journalists who were allowed at the parliamentary presses. And I thought it was sort of ironic that one of those journalistic voices that we heard was Beth Rigby from Sky News asking Boris Johnson a question. And I say ironic because Beth was eventually put on several months leave after being found to have breached COVID guideline, guidelines she gave such credence to with her participation at the press conference in the first place. They've also decided to use the classic clip of then PM Boris Johnson being asked about being at a hospital and daring to shake hands with people. Johnson responds that he shakes hands with everyone and will continue to do so, which, as people may remember, he quickly backtracked on the moment because that moment of candor was way too much and he was soon back on, me on message. You know, it's my opinion that the people who broke the COVID guidelines did so simply because they knew there was nothing to fear other than the message that they themselves had promoted. Throughout Breathtaking, we are subject to one fear message after another. 
We hear quotes like the virus is always going to be ahead. You can never be prepared enough. They repeatedly say things like this is guidance. We have to follow guidelines. Now, I have to say, and this is my opinion, but Dr. Rachel Clark has been extremely useful in solidifying the COVID narrative as this pandemic killing machine. But what her drama also reveals is the utter complicity of doctors and nurses like her who ramped up the narrative. You know, she's perfect for this. She is a doctor who seeks both adoration and celebrity. They portray her as a reluctant whistleblower, but that was not my experience of Dr. Rachel Clark at all. Throughout COVID, I witnessed a doctor who was desperate for fame. You know, all the world's a stage, as they say. Now, whether they intended to or not, her character is portrayed as the instigator of a lot of the fear. When she was part of a work meeting, she was the one who ramped up the social distancing and masking, despite the hospital administrator trying to contain her histrionics and her hyperbole. And it goes on. She just keeps ramping up the fear. You constantly get the you get the feeling that Rachel Clark was this one woman pandemic machine. You know, deliberately or not, she was literally portrayed this way. There's also an absolute absence of context about why the NHS was apparently in problems. And there's no mention of the fact that it's been systematically broken down for nearly two decades by successive governments. I endured the whole three-part series for research. I wanted to be able to see how much propaganda they were pumping out, and they did not disappoint in that regard. For me, breathtaking felt more like a confessional than a TV drama. You know, it was almost like, well, this was my role in it. Now, given that Rachel Clark is one of the three writers and it's based on her memoirs, she can hardly say she was misquoted when the applause dies and the trials of complicity start. She was portrayed as being separated from her children as she isolated. Rachel Clark's story in Breathtaking had everything except doctors and nurses dancing on TikTok, the demonization of the drug ivermectin and the mass orders of midazolam, which was used to prematurely end the lives of many people. Some of it was unbearable to watch because you could imagine it in real life. So I just really have one point to ask, and that is when is there going to be accountability for the collateral damage that took place as a result of people like Dr. Rachel? Chuck Clark, I beg my beg your pardon. Breathtaking is breathtakingly audacious. It is propaganda in its purest and rawest form. Avoid at all costs. And on that note, I'm going to go get Gemma Cooper. Giving you what you want. I want the fact. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And it's Friday, and we're here with Gemma Cooper. How are you doing today, Gemma? Uh, yeah, very well, thank you. And thank you for watching that awful piece of propaganda so that I don't have to. I'm very aware of the row it's caused on uh, social media, a, a debate, discourse, I would prefer to call it, with many people calling it out for what it is, uh, but others really standing up for it and saying, you know, how dare you slag off the NHS? How dare you slag off frontline doctors? You know, but this this particular doctor, um, you know, so traumatized and so overwhelmed and so, you know, affected by everything, found time to write a book. 
found time to keep a diary, you know, with one eye on the future. It's almost political, isn't it? That's what politicians do. One eye on the future. They know when they leave office, they'll release their book and they'll make loads of money. That's that's what this, this absolutely whiffs of. And actually today, she's in a national newspaper, um, you know, with her side of it yet again, the reaction that this whole thing has generated, how she's overwhelmed by messages of support. And, oh, you know, it's all about her, isn't it? Classic narcissism, classic gaslighting, manipulation of the facts, you know, and, and doubling down all the time. I mean, really, what a piece of work. So thanks for watching it. I didn't go near it. I wouldn't go near it. I wouldn't give it an ounce of my attention. But uh, you, you've taken one for the team there, Sonia. Taken one for the TNT team. Absolutely. And uh, you did remind me yesterday in converse conversation that uh, it was Dr. Rachel Clark, why Bob Moran, who was actually coming up on the Abby Roberts show later, why Bob Moran ended up leaving the, the Daily Telegraph. Well, I don't think he left. I mean, I think he was unceremonious. Oh, no, he didn't leave. Go, You're right. He? Yeah, I don't think ejected. he left. He was yeah, he was ejected. He was fired, wasn't he, as a direct result of her actions and the spat that they had, again, on social media. So she found a lot of time to go on social media, didn't she, at the height of the scandemic and and, and has caused rows with people, caused people to lose their jobs. You know, make up your mind, love. What are you doing? You, you, you a frontline doctor, desperately busy saving lives, or are you enjoying the considerable attention that you've garnered with your actions? You know, really, we saw a lot of that, didn't we? We saw a lot of people high on their own supply of narcissism. Suddenly yes. the attention's on them. They're really getting off on the, you know, save lives, you know, protect the NHS. The real scandal, of course, with this docudrama, and the word is on drama, is we should be in the NHS now. We should be making films about the NHS and the state of it now, not looking back uh, and repeating fear-based propaganda. The investigation now is why there's 8 million people on the waiting list as a direct result uh, of government policy. And you, nobody wanted to go near a hospital. Nobody wanted to go near a GP. And that that's the legacy that we're still looking at. I mean, it's just absolutely, this is a scandal, this one, because after the post office drama, people will be thinking that this is real because the post office, right. you know, would generated such great headlines and was written right. in such a credible way by a proper writer. People will look at this drama and think it's the same as the post office and they'll believe it. They will believe yes. it. If you're still into mainstream narratives, you'll believe it. That's, that's a scandal as well. Let's get her yeah, on. It, Let's get her on. Let's get her oh, on. Oh, do you know, I'd absolutely love it. Do you know, I'm going to send her a message today and I'm going to invite her on to discuss it. I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. But yeah, I would I would highly recommend that everybody avoid it because we need to send a message to ITV because obviously it will be a loss for them. The less people that watch it, the, the more it impacts their advertising revenue and ITV. But ITV were all part of the, the same con though, Gemma. Obviously, they were receiving government funds for advertising. So it, it also benefits them, doesn't it, to sort of solidify the narrative this was what was happening this was why we we reacted and, and broadcast the way we did so it sort of helps them all doesn't it it does and i wonder when this decision to make this drama was taken um you know obviously it wouldn't have been just taken yesterday to make this uh this this piece of propaganda they would have read the book they would have thought about this there would have been endless production and commissioning meetings shall we shan't we and i wonder now given the reaction it's generated and it's a real 50 50 split the reaction that you know that this, this has had do they regret it do they because once the commissioning process is in in full flow it's kind of hard to unwrap it because it costs a lot of money to commission a drama as we both know um we both worked in the media but you know now it, the, the public mood has shifted away from this narrative it's not 100% been well yeah. received far from it far far from it do they regret it I mean it's done the damage is done it's out um, but will there be subsequent dramas like this or subsequent docudramas I don't know I don't know I, I really don't know I haven't watched it I'm not going to go near it I'd, let's end the debate here unless she's got the balls to come on TNT then I'll watch with interest that would be tremendous, absolutely tremendous. So what are we discussing today? 
Well, we're discussing uh, Shamima Begin. She uh, finds out today if she can uh, return to the UK and get her UK passport back. I mean, this is a story that has been running and running and running since uh, 2015 when the schoolgirl, she made world headlines, didn't she? She dropped out of school with two friends, travelled to Syria, uh, ended up marrying a Dutch ISIS fighter, had three children with him, all, all died, and then went missing until she was found in 2019 in, in a refugee camp uh, in Syria. Um, and since then, really, there has been a series of huge legal battles uh, since 2020. Um, she's then she decided she wanted to return to the UK. She was stripped of her citizenship because she joined, a, you know, ostensibly a terror organization. Uh, Savi Javid, he, re- he revoked her citizenship, took away her UK passport, which was controversial decision because it could have left her stateless without without a home. But they said she was Bangladeshi by descent so that 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 was effectively she could return to her homeland there. Um, but there's been a series of legal battles. She's she expressed remorse. She says she was young. She says she was recruited. Um, at the, you know, for a while, she says she had no regrets about joining ISIS. But then she said she did have regrets. She wanted to come home. And then there's been a huge, huge legal battle, uh, which eventually she did lose uh, in October last year, um, well, February last year, rather. She appealed in October last year. She's still in a refugee camp, but her lawyers are now arguing a point of law, which is that she probably was a victim of human trafficking. She was recruited by the ISIS propaganda machine for sexual exploitation. And if that is the case, if she was a victim of human trafficking when she was young, that is a point of law that the UK government should have considered more because it has a duty of care to people who have been trafficked. So they're going to argue the appeal on that case. They have argued the appeal on that case. That's what her lawyers are saying. Uh, Casey for the Home Office says even if she was trafficked, it's still a matter of national security, giving her a UK passport back, given her links to terror organisations. It doesn't negate what happened. Um, So she appealed. We'll see today the appeal decision is being handed down at 10am. But much like Julian Assange, it won't be the end of it. It'll be a decision. Then there'll be the appeal hearing and it'll just go on and on and on at a considerable cost to the UK taxpayer. I have to say. So that's where we are. She's 24 years old now. You could argue she's grown up a bit. She has been on uh, on mainstream media outlets over the last few years saying she does regret what happened and she was young and she was naive and she was trafficked and she wants to come back to the UK. She's living in a refugee camp. I wouldn't wager she wants to come back to the UK. But I do think it, you know, the cost of the taxpayer has now been considerable. And this won't be the end of it today at 10 o'clock. It will run on and on and on and generate more headlines. It was a huge story, huge I'm astonished to hear you say she's 24. She's frozen in my mind as being 15. I can still see the image of her and two other girls uh, walking. And uh, I'm very torn on this, Gemma, because she was 15 years old. And, you know, we don't seem to have a problem in accepting that uh, Pakistani grooming gangs or Muslim grooming gangs exist here and are grooming girls. But we seem to have a problem in accepting that she could perhaps be a victim of such a a similar kind of gang. And, uh, you know, I have to go back to the fact that I believe she was very young. And uh, I would, if it was, if I had the power I would absolutely ensure that she was brought back to the UK. But I don't have that power, unfortunately. And I tend to think that she's like a bit of a political football these days. I think that she's a sort of warning to other people, much like Julian Assange. I'm not comparing her to Julian Assange in what they set out to do. Absolutely not. But in terms of she is a warning to other people, do not follow her footsteps. You will be ostracised from the UK. Where do you stand on the issue? Um. I'm not entirely sure. I think the key thing is she was 15, uh, as you rightly say. And at the time she said she hated the UK, she hated everything about it, and she had no regrets. And now she's grown up a bit. She's 24. She's still young. um, And she says she didn't hate the UK. She hated her life. 
And now what 15 year old does not identify with those sentiments? You know, you're, you're a confused teenager. We don't know a lot about her family background. Um, and, you know, but the, but the fact that, you know, her and two others left the UK in quite a sophisticated way and did end up, you know, in the in this camp, um, you know, it does smack of a sophisticated network. It does smack of trafficking. They obviously were told where to go and what to do. Um, what what was, you know, extraordinary was the level of, of interest globally. Um, and it's still running on, still running on. It's making headlines this morning because of the, this appeal hearing. So it, it depends, you know, where this appeal hearing goes. The, the UK government and the Ministry of Justice were so adamant at the time, you are not coming back. Uh, so the key is, was she trafficked? And if she was, it opens a whole other debate because is she the only one? Far, far from it, I am sure. Uh, but she's the one that made all the headlines. She, she did indeed. This has been Friday's edition with Gemma Cooper and I will be right back. We'll see Gemma, of course, again on Monday. Have a great weekend, Gemma. TNT's Hervoy Morich. Putin said Biden would be a better US president for Russia than Trump and dismissed concerns over his counterpart's age and acuity for the role. Um, so maybe he's af afraid of that label again of Russian collusion, Trump, Putin uh, and whatnot. But, you know, he's made the statement in the past that it doesn't matter who's in the White House, left or right, Democrat or Republican. Once the president gets in, um, men in black suits show up and tell tell him what to do. Pervoy Morich on today's News Talk TNT. This is generally the view of people, oh, we don't know much about Assange. Well, you should know. Because whether you know it or not, he is fighting for you. For your courage and leadership and tenacity in journalism and publishing. Since 2010, Assange has been held in progressively narrower, darker, colder and crueler spaces. He has been detained since the 7th of December 2010 in one form or another. And we are now here after years of imprisonment. WikiLeaks is a non-state hostile intelligence service. I think the man is a high-tech terrorist. A high-tech terrorist. A traitor, a treasonous. He has to answer for what he has done. Assange faces up to 175 years in prison for publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes. The U.S. government narrative about Julian is a complete fraud. It is a complete fraud from A to Z. Julian took on the most powerful countries in the world, basically all of them. We now have confirmed that there were plans to kidnap Julian here in the center of London, or even assassinate him. No one who instigated that illegal and immoral war has been brought to justice. But the great truth teller sits behind bars. If wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by truth. Julian Assange is a hero. What if everything we thought we knew about somebody was a lie? Would we be willing to go on a new journey of understanding? This is a story of deception, lies, bravery, and a man who risked everything to bring the truth to light. Mr. Assange shows all the symptoms that are typical for a person that has been exposed to psychological torture over a prolonged period of time. He looked at me intensely and said, I hate to say this, 
He then hesitated, visibly troubled and searching for words. And then he finally said, Please, save my life. May future generations have the ability to speak without restraint. May our children and their children know truth and have access to information that leads to justice. Wherever Julian goes, free speech goes with him. If there is a bird that is about to take flight, stretch her wings and rule the skies, may it be a peace dove and no longer a bald eagle. If you think Assad is a traitor, he's a rapist, he's a narcissist, he's a hacker, I don't blame you because you have been deceived. And if you think you've not been deceived, that's normal because otherwise it wouldn't be deception. TNTradio.live. Online. Online. Online streaming. Be a part of the conversation. I stream it all at work and I stream it to my phone and listen to it wherever I go. TNT. Well, your messages are coming in thick and fast as they always do, and we appreciate them greatly in reference to the breathtaking intro that I did. Uh, Shin says, we haven't got a TV. Me, 25 years and counting. My missus, 35 years and counting. The children have the garden and the animals. That sounds like a very productive way forward. And uh, Holly says, let's face it, they are scared and they know they need a drama to keep public opinion on their side. Thank God I don't watch the telly box. So say all of us. And uh, Chris, in reference to my invitation to Dr. Clark's says, hope she accepts, doubt she will. I highly doubt she will. And uh, obviously the conversation that Gemma was just telling us about is very divided you greatly. Some people are saying, yes, she's 15. We didn't know what we were doing at 15. And others are saying, yes, we did. We did know what we were doing at 15. So very, very divided. As I say, I'm on the side of she was 15 years old. I am worried that, that Shemima Begum was uh, trafficked. And on that note, I want to welcome a doctor who is not a coward and who has been prepared to speak up throughout, rather a surgeon, actually, Dr. Anthony Hinton. Good morning, Tony. How are you today? Good morning, Sonia. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Absolutely wonderful. Sorry, I've got a bit of an itchy nose going on there. Forgive me, everybody. Um, absolutely wonderful. Even better to see you. Now, Tony, when I said to you yesterday, have you watched Breathtaking? Would you like to share with the viewers what your response was? Well, I said, no, I haven't seen it. And I have no intention at all of watching it because it's not really, um, I would say, an accurate documentary. It's more... I would call propaganda um, because the government and the medical hierarchy are increasingly in more and more trouble over what they did over COVID. And um, I do know a little bit about Dr. Rachel Clark. In fact, she started off as a journalist and producer working for um, Channel 4 and the BBC. And she did that for many years and then decided that she would go to medical school and then moved into what's called palliative care. So she worked in um, a hospice looking after people, for instance, dying of cancer. Um, and then she claimed that when COVID struck, she volunteered to look after COVID patients. Now, whether that's true or not, I've no idea, but. I, along with many of my medical colleagues, 
um, that no longer that had already retired from the NHS also volunteered to do that work. And I don't know a single one of my colleagues that was even contacted and asked to go and help out anywhere at all. Um, I know a certain amount of what was happening in hospitals because I was talking to my anaesthetic colleagues who were looking after the illest patients in ITU. And there certainly were some patients that got very ill from COVID or possibly other diseases that were labelled as COVID because of testing, which was not that accurate. Um, and I think when we look back now, some of those patients certainly were harmed and damaged from COVID, but some of them were also harmed and damaged from the treatments, which we would not do the same now. So for instance, intubation and ventilation was very bad for patients' lungs. And of course, what we were all told, weren't we, was that, you know, if you had any symptoms of COVID, any symptoms of a chest infection, you basically didn't bother the doctor, you stayed at home until almost you could no longer breathe. And then you go to hospital. Well, we don't do that for any normal respiratory diseases. You treat these things early. So it could be, for instance, just some antibiotics early on to prevent a, a bacterial pneumonia on top of possibly something like the flu uh, would have solved the problem for lots of those patients. Obviously, the longer you leave a patient and the sicker they are, then the more difficult it is to deal with them. But I did listen to um, a, an interview Dr. Rachel Clark did, very soft interview, I have to say. I think it was on Good Morning Britain or something. I wasn't watching the programme, but there was a clip on the internet. And um, she's obviously very much um, against the current government. I think I'm not sure whether she's a Labour supporter or a Lib Dem supporter, right. but but for, there's a long history of criticising anything that the Conservative government does. And um, I have to say, even though I voted for them, I criticise everything the Conservative government does now because they don't do anything Conservative. Right. <laughs> I think that's a lot of people's problems with them, isn't it? Yeah, she's definitely uh, involved in the political side, no doubt about it. A lot of what she says is political. So she's a combination between a political ang uh, animal and somebody who is very clearly to me, fame hungry. I've been around a lot of people like Rachel in my life as a journalist and I can smell them a mile off, Tony. I absolutely can. I knew, you know, three years ago, I was like, this one wants fame. That's what she wants. And there are lots of questions now about her um, CV as well. So listen, let us take a quick break to go to the news headlines and we will be right back. TNT Radio News. What the f Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Incredible visions emerged out of Spain where a fire has engulfed two high-rise buildings, killing multiple people. Nigeria's defence chief has slammed the West for allowing its weapons to end up in the hands of terrorists. Iran has blamed Israel for last week's explosions that ruptured two of the country's key gas pipelines. And a police officer in Australia has been charged with murdering his ex-boyfriend and his new partner before disposing of their bodies. On air and on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. 
I'm just here talking with surgeon, Dr. Anthony Hinton, consultant surgeon, 30 years experience, now retired from the NHS. So you can be pretty sure that he knows what he's talking about with reference to his comments regarding this program that set everybody alight, breathtaking. So Tony, let us talk about things that we know are fact. There's been the largest COVID vaccine study ever that has finally revealed some of the actual health risks, but it, it all seems like it's very minimizing. I, I, are you familiar with this study? I am. And in fact, um, we do have to pay a lot of attention to it because it was at least partially set up and funded by the CDC, the sort of American healthcare regulator. Um, and obviously, the larger the study you have, the more reliable are the results. And this was just over 99 million patients. And a lot of the, I have to say, a lot of the things that we're looking for, the complications after vaccines, are thankfully relatively rare. But if you're giving out billions of vaccines, it still amounts to millions of people that have been harmed. And of course, Rishi Sunak stood up in Parliament just two weeks ago and just made the statement, COVID vaccines are safe. Just a few days later, he was being confronted by two COVID vaccine injured people on another news program and had to admit that some people, a small number of people, he said, had been harmed and there was a compensation scheme. Well, obviously, those two statements don't add up. You can't say on the one hand they are safe, full stop. And on the other hand, some people have been harmed and there's a compensation scheme. There is no medicine in the world that is 100% safe. And that's part of the problem with this whole COVID thing. L lockdowns and vaccines were all just done without any thought of what the downsides might be. So if we just look at a few of the complications, let, let's just take the heart complications, which I think everybody accepts now there are heart complications from COVID vaccines, not just Pfizer, but Moderna and AstraZeneca as well. So I've got a couple that I just jotted down. So for myocarditis, that's inflammation of the heart muscle. And that's very important because inflammation of the heart muscle, if those heart muscles are damaged beyond repair, then they die and they're not replaced with new heart muscle they're replaced by scar tissue. So it can have ongoing consequences for the rest of somebody's life. So for Pfizer, from their second dose, you were almost three times more likely to get myocarditis than someone that hadn't had the vaccine. For Moderna, on their second dose, it was six times higher. And for AstraZeneca, for pericarditis, which is inflammation, around the heart muscle that was almost seven times higher than someone that hadn't had the vaccine now if you remember when we were being given covid figures every single night and the percentage of people that had covid and things like that and your chance of catching your chance of dying we were talking about tiny tiny percentages often less than one percent now we have to bear in mind that something that is almost seven times more likely in the vaccinated person than the unvaccinated 
is equivalent to 700%. That's how percents work. And yet with COVID, we were talking about fractions of 1%. Now, you talk about the myocarditis, and of course, people say, oh, but people that had COVID could also get myocarditis. But I certainly can't remember, and I don't know whether you can remember, Sonia, but during that first year, 2020, how often were we told that people that got COVID were then suffering from myocarditis? No, I never. never heard it. Never heard it. No. That started to come about once it became clear that the vaccines were causing myocarditis. No. And even if it were the case that a small percentage of people after COVID were getting myocarditis, that doesn't mean that you're better off taking the vaccine because right. the vaccine doesn't stop you catching COVID or passing it on. Um, completely opposite to what we were originally told, of course. We were told if you took it, you couldn't catch, couldn't pass it on. But you can still catch, you can still pass it on. So if there is a slight risk of myocarditis from COVID, that is just adding to the additional risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. The two add together. Right. The risk from the vaccine doesn't stop the risk from COVID if there is one, because it doesn't stop right. COVID. Right. So right. there would still be a point in taking the vaccine in order to try to prevent something it doesn't prevent. Um, there's lots of other neurological conditions as well. Um, there's a thing called Guillain-Barre, which is a thing where you get some inflammation in your spine and you can end up with paralysis. At least probably 90% of people with that with that will make a 90% recovery. So that means 10% of people may only make a 10% recovery. Right. Um, so again, there are lots of neurological, there are lots of immunological problems. Um, and the issue is that this is pretty much all being ignored. You know, in the UK, we have this yellow card system to report these side effects. In America, they have this fair system. But I've done so far 15 yellow cards on my patients that they're mainly people that have ended up with tinnitus, which is noises in the ear after having a COVID vaccine. Or a few patients I've seen with um, intractable severe migraines um, after the vaccines. And I've sent off all those yellow cards. I've had no contact at all from the MHRA who run the yellow card system. No one has contacted me to say, could we have more details of these patients? Um, are the patients happy to be contacted for us to ask them some questions? It, 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 it's a pointless system. It's just ignored. And in fact, it the head is. of the MHRA said, said they had become an enabler for the pharmaceutical industry, no longer exactly. a regulator. Well, that's not their job. It's, their job is no, a regulator. Absolutely absolutely not their job and just because time is limited for us tony i want to address this issue because it's absolutely linked to what you're saying and that is about the office for national statistics suddenly changing how they are calculating excess deaths what's going on here well let me just first say there's no perfect way to calculate excess deaths the traditional way was you took the previous five years you divided that by five 
to get an average number of deaths per year. And that was your baseline. And then you compared the year you were concerned about how many more deaths or less deaths were there that year than that previous five-year average. Now, in 2020, the year of the so-called pandemic, the, the five years before were 15 to 19. And then there was a big jump in 2020. And then 21, 22, the excess deaths just kept on going up. Now, there's a number of tricks that the ONS do. The first is they started to include 21 and 22, which already had a large number of excess deaths in calculating the five-year average. So the five-year average is just going up and up and up and up. If you do that for five years, your excess deaths disappear. Just oh, no. With calculation. Yeah. But they've gone even further than that. They've suddenly decided that, no, uh, the five-year average isn't good enough. It's not accurate enough. So they've now made a model. Now, that'd be a whole new program about the use of models during COVID, and we know where that got us. But they've got this model, and suddenly the excess deaths they reckoned from uh, 2023, they they thought were 30,000. A lot of us would say 60,000 because of the other tricks they do. Suddenly that 30,000 has become 10,000. Wow. Have these 20,000 people just come back to life? Right, I mean, this is just deception, isn't it? This is so deception. So a lot it, of the questions being asked about excess deaths. And if they want to change the way they calculate excess deaths, they should also show us a table of, say, the last 10 years with excess deaths calculated in that same way. And we'd still then see the deaths going up. But, of course, they haven't done that. They've left the pre-COVID ones calculated by the same five-year average, it's only now they're making that change that reduces them. So you can't, can't compare one figure to the next. And I guess what they're hoping for is people will say, oh, it's just impossible to calculate these accurately and basically sort of discredit the whole idea of how you calculate excess deaths. So yes, the problem that, goes that is the aim. Absolutely. I have to stop you there, more's the pity. This is, has been Dr. Anthony Hinton. He's spoken up throughout COVID and there he is raising the alarm on the ONS, ap apparently deceiving us over excess deaths. Have a great weekend, Tony. Lovely to see you again. I will be right back with my next guest. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The phantasmagorical farce of a Soviet-style show trial in which we had verdict first and then trial presided over by Judge Arthur Engron in Manhattan has concluded. And it's a big story, not just for the absurd verdict handed down by Engron, but no, a deeper story involving Engron himself, or more specifically, how he chooses to present himself to the public. Uncombed hair, unkempt clothes, sloppily knotted ties. Basically a man who doesn't care, a man who has no self-respect. And he has unwittingly become a symbol for what ails America. We've become a slovenly nation. Our streets are filthy. Our subways are unsafe. People board airplanes looking like they just rolled out of bed in three-week-old gym clothes. Where's the self-respect, America? Where's the, the pride in being Americans? Where's the pride in having beautiful parks and clean subway stations? and wonderful cultural amenities. What has happened to America? It's time we get our self-respect back. 
And those of us who are self-respecting, we need to do a better job of holding our fellow citizens to a higher standard. For MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk TNT. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines ready to serve, healing, nurturing, rescuing, protecting, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations has never been more important, and it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you, the Nonprofit Alliance. You're with Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk TNT. Well, our viewers are quite rightly very concerned about the ONS being extremely deceptive about excess deaths. And uh, many are saying, I've never had it, I've never had that jab, don't intend to. Uh, very concerned about uh, what is taking place. And so say all of us. I'm delighted to be joined by my next guest. And uh, he's a politician. He's a businessman. He's a serving politician. He's co-deputy leader of Reform UK alongside David Bull. He is Ben Habib. Good morning. Good morning, Ben. How are you? Good morning, Sonia. I'm very well indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, it, it's absolutely our pleasure, Ben. I have to say now, I'm I'm infamously not a great fan of politicians. I became politically homeless just simply because I became so disillusioned. But the one thing that I would have to say about you, Ben, is you're a real straight shooter. I've seen you in interview. And when people ask you a question, you don't duck and dive it like politicians do. You do answer it straight on, which I really respect. I appreciate that greatly. And one of the things that you said was when you joined the Reform Party, your aim was to obliterate, yes, obliterate the Conservative Party. Do expand on that for us. Well, the Conservative Party has passed itself off as obviously being Conservative. And it's traded on a reputation of low taxation, deregulation, less state intervention, promotion of the private sector, and a withdrawal of the state from our personal lives. But actually, if you look at what the Conservative Party has done over the last 14 years, the state is more bloated than it's ever been. We've had more state intervention than, we, than we've ever had. And as you were talking to Dr. Hinton about, you know, the COVID interventions were at, an, you know, at a level that none of us could have predicted before COVID hit, the state interventions, I mean. Uh, lockdown, for example, and furlough and all the rest of it. Um, and we've got now the highest taxation rate as a proportion of GDP since World War II. We've got national debts at a post-World War II high. We're running a massive budget deficit. Um, and the economy is going through the floor with rampant immigration. These are None of these um, uh, are symptoms or could be produced by the policy agenda that the Conservatives pretend to aspire to. These are all effectively the result of socialist policies. These are more symptomatic of what you'd expect after 14 years of a Labour government. And so when a Conservative Party passes itself off to be something that it clearly is not, and it repeatedly makes those promises, and of course, Sonia, you'll remember the promises made about Brexit. The, United, the country would leave the EU as one United Kingdom, taking back control of our laws, our cash, our fishing. You know, all those promises were broken. And it breaks promises habitually, and it therefore needs to go. And it, in my opinion, it is so fundamentally flawed as a political party that to allow it to continue in its current shape or form 
would be to do the British people in the United Kingdom a massive disservice. So I only joined Reform UK. Um, I was reluctant to join a political party, but I only joined it because if you want to do damage to another party or you want to promote a particular um, policy agenda, which, you know, in, in, in my case is Reform UK's policy agenda, you've got to do it at the electoral, you've got to do it through, you know, through the through the electoral process. And um, so my initial aim when I joined Reform UK was to obliterate the Conservative Party. But before I could almost lift a finger towards that aim, they've kind of done it to themselves, haven't they? You know, we've stood in a few by-elections, but they've just completely imploded. I mean, it was, it, it was interesting. I, I, I stood in the Wellingborough by-election about a week ago, and I had a number of Conservative MPs saying, if, if you know, this is an opportunity for Reform UK to prove itself. If it can't prove itself in Wellingborough, well, they simply are not performing. And I thought to myself, that coming from MPs of a Conservative party that have completely failed over the last 14 years. Anyway, I digress. But yes, you're absolutely right. My aim was to obliterate the Conservative party, though they've beaten me to it. Right. And obviously, because the government is just so rancidly awful, a number of parties with conservatives with a small C, such as reform, have sprung up. So you have reclaim, reform, heritage, etc. But reform seems to be the only one who's actually making any strides, which is very interesting. Obviously, you had the Wellingborough uh, win the other week in terms of, as you say, it's a dramatic rise in popularity by winning 13 percent of votes. So that is significant in its own right. But here's the thing, Ben. Many people are worried that politicians cannot relate to people like me. People who, well, I'm not necessarily struggling. I'm, I'm far from struggling. But there are people who are doing two, three jobs, uh, you know, a, a day in order just to be able to pay their basic bills. Now, it, it doesn't escape my attention, obviously, that the people involved with reform, you appear to be a privileged bunch. But I'm not entirely convinced that you are part of the Westminster bubble, but how can you persuade people that you can understand the concerns of, of people who are out there struggling? I can't speak for any other members of Reform UK, and they'll all have their different reasons for being members of Reform UK. I mean, I'm a member of Reform UK because, you know, I, I wish to put the United Kingdom first and its people first and make policies purely with those two aims in mind. But I think I can relate to anyone who's faced adversity. Even though I'm very fortunate in my life, I went to rugby school, then Cambridge University, and I worked in the city. My, my father actually made whatever wealth we had as children came from nothing as a result of my father's efforts. And I recall and am acutely aware of the massive effort he made to put me through a private education in the United Kingdom. And I haven't been without my own adversity in life. And I think, you know, I started a small business. I still run my own business. And if you've done that, you know what it's like to be up against it. And a fear of failure, this is a personal, it's a personal question, so I'm ask, answering it in a personal way. The fear of failure is what drives me most. And I think it, when, when, you, when you work in adversity, when your life is um, conducted in an you know, in adversity, which is the vast majority of us. You know, most of us go to bed worrying about our security. Where is it going to come from? What's next? How am I going to manage? If you've been accustomed to that, if you've experienced it, I mean, I hope people don't always feel it, but if you've had it, if you've had that experience, then you can relate to people who are suffering and struggling because you've been there. 
And I think the fear of failure, which has driven me on in my life, has allowed me, I, I, I believe, to connect with people who are struggling. And so I know what it means to want to be able to make more money, to want to be able to keep that, that which is legitimately yours and not have the state dipping its hands into your back pocket to take it, to be able to afford to buy what you wish to buy, not to have your wages undercut by some unfair competition. And in, from a political pers perspective, right. that, of course, referring to, you know, rampant um, immigration of unskilled workers and so on. You know, so I think I do relate to it. And the other thing I'd say, Sonia, and I think it's lost on people, is if you wish to be a politician in a democratic system, then you better get comfortable with promoting the interests of the working and middle classes because democracy, the majority, the vast majority of people are the working and middle class. And if you can't get your head around the promotion of their interests, frankly, you shouldn't be in a democracy. You're in the wrong form of government, gov governance. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of votes out there waiting to be had. That's the truth. There are many people who have become absolutely politically homeless and they're looking for a home. I have a lot of issues, obviously, with the two-party system, as indeed I know you do. But let's look at some of reform's policies. We know that the idea yeah. is to reduce taxation, reduce illegal immigration. Now, there are other hot issues that really concern people, and one of them absolutely has to be to do with Israel and Palestine. Where does reform stand on that? Would reform call for a ceasefire so there are two debates before we go before we enter the discussion on ceasefire can i just say there are two debates taking place um about syria and gaza and uh, not syria israel and gaza the first debate is obviously the foreign policy debate you know what should syria oh, forgive me what should israel be doing and is it going too far etc etc but there's a parallel debate, which is one that concerns me more, frankly, if you don't mind me saying so, than the principal foreign policy issue. And that is what's happening domestically in the United Kingdom. And the Israeli-Gaza conflict is playing out on the streets of the United Kingdom. And I, and I, that concerns me. Being a member of Reform UK, and as I mentioned, you know, I'm in it for the United Kingdom, for the interests of the people of the United Kingdom. What I see on the streets of London and what I see what happening in the United Kingdom, including, for example, Lindsay Hoyle, our speaker, collapsing to the pressure of threats of violence if he didn't allow the Labour amendment to be heard in Parliament the other day, tells me that we've got fundamental issues at home which are being played through the prism of the Israeli-Gaza dispute. And what I mean by that is the multiculturalism that we've practiced over the last 25 years, taking on you know, North Africans, Middle Easterns, Pakistanis, Indians, and so on, bringing them to the UK, making no attempt for, for people to integrate, allowing cultures to um, propagate themselves independently of integration so that you've now got multi-silos of different cultures operating in the United Kingdom, often in antipathy to each other and often in antipathy to British culture, British history, are British values, and I, I do take that, that point. Yeah, I, I do take that point, Ben. 
Yeah, no, yeah. I absolutely do take that point. I think one of the big concerns that many people have about politicians is politicians seem to be answering to everybody else except us, which in part you've just actually addressed. And I absolutely take that. We People are deeply concerned about the sort of globalist nature of politicians, the fact that so many politicians are in the pocket of Israel. And that is a problem. And I think that if yeah. reform... UK actually want to be able to make strides. I think that the Israel issue and that of ceasefire is one that needs to be tackled and addressed personally, just being on the ground and hearing what people have to say. But I do take your point that we are overly focused almost constantly on everybody else's foreign policies, right? Yeah, I mean, Ukraine's another classic example. You know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, of course it was absolutely right that we should arm Ukraine um, and make sure that we didn't find Russian missiles on the border with Poland. But we achieved that aim pretty quickly as a country. Russia got pinned down in the southeastern region of Ukraine. You know, within months, they were pinned down in that area. But the narrative that we adopted in the West was one of anything that Zelensky wishes to do, we will finance. You know, Ukraine has to be entirely free, and it's for Zelensky and his people to decide how they're going to do it. And we will write a blank check, in effect. And we spent five billion pounds. The U.S. has spent one hundred and fifty billion dollars financing the Ukrainian war. Five billion for us is a lot of money when you think. Oh, about it certainly is. Billion. It, it certainly and is. It certainly is. But you see, unfortunately, Ben, we don't, we simply don't have a long enough time, which I wish we did. I wish you and I had at yeah. least an hour. No, not at all. Absolutely not at all. Let me quickly bring you to something else, because I think this is also important. And that is the Reform Party is now calling for an inquiry into the vaccine damage, which is great. We, we need that. We need more awareness. But have I got this wrong? But didn't Richard Tice, the leader, originally promote the whole COVID narrative have i got that wrong i i think richard would dispute that you'll have to ask richard himself what his views were during covid i think there is a video going around which, which but frankly i haven't seen but there is a video going around in which david bull and him discuss vaccines and i think he uh, apparently said that those in the front line of nhs should be vaccinated or words to that effect but um i mean what i would say about richard uh is that He's human. And as we went through that COVID period, lots of, uh, you know, the, the state was basically scaring us into submission. That's what the whole state machinery was about. Some of us didn't uh, fall for it. I didn't fall for it because actually I'm quite fatalistic. I mean, I think if a virus is going to jump down and kill me, well, so be it. That's just, you know, death is part of life. I would never wish to give up my civil liberties and my freedom for fear of death. Um, but that's me personally. Um, I think what Richard rightly wishes to do, and I certainly wish to do, is to have a complete analysis of government response to the virus, including not just the vaccine, you know, how the vaccine worked out, but whether lockdowns were right or not in the first place, and whether or not all the economic responses were correct. We've done a hell of a lot of damage to the United Kingdom's economy, to our own health, to the infrastructure of the United Kingdom, you know, the damage from COVID were vast. And the, and, the, and the majority of that damage didn't come from the virus. The vast majority of that damage was not the virus itself. It was the government response to the virus. Absolutely, it was. Yes. COVID inquiry right yeah. questions. Yeah, there's so many there's so many problems, isn't there, attached to this? Absolutely. They're pointing out to me in the comments, Ben, that you didn't call for a ceasefire. 
between uh, I, Palestine and Israel? Is that beyond your remit? Well, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to call for a ceasefire between Palestine and Israel, to, to be frank. I mean, I think that for me, the battle is at home. The, the Middle Eastern battle has gone on forever. And if we're to concern ourselves about massive loss of life, why aren't we asking questions of China over the Uyghurs or of the Taliban over what's going on in Afghanistan? Good points. As a or in Good and fair Libya. points. Oh, my gosh, we are going to have to leave you there, which is such a pity. This, everybody, has been Ben Abib from the Reform UK. And at least he's had the guts and courage to step up to the plate and answer some direct questions, which I can always respect. Thank you so much, Ben. Truly appreciate your courage in doing that. Really, I do. So this brings us to the end, of course, of the Sonia Poulton show on this historic week where the High Court are making decisions about whether Julian Assange can appeal against extradition. We've been there all the way this week from the premiere on Sunday through to the days outside the High I want to thank everyone who made this possible, all the incredible TNT crew and you wonderful people out there who support our work. This is today's News Talk and we are indeed lighting the fuse for freedom. Have a terrific weekend, everybody, and stick around for more great TNT shows, including Abby Roberts. Take excellent care of yourself.